Hello. In my day job as Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation, I'm frequently asked why the National Health Service is finding it hard to cope, especially now during winter. I often talk about the gap between the demand the health and care system is facing and our capacity to meet that demand. I go on to argue that this gap grew in the austerity decade of the 2010s, when health spending rose at around half the rate health policy experts generally agree is needed to keep up with population ageing, rising medical expectations and costs. Now, some people might agree with me about this, but still argue that austerity was necessary and functional. After all, the Conservative Lib Dem alliance elected in 2010 inherited a huge public spending deficit. Surely economics would dictate that there was no alternative. There was certainly a view shared by most experts and the general public. Yet, in our response to COVID, and to some extent in our response to the war in Ukraine, we've ignored economic orthodoxy and done whatever was necessary to keep the economy moving. So how should we understand austerity as an economic strategy? And what if it's actually less to do with economics and a lot more to do with power? Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Clara Matai, who is Assistant Professor at the New York School for Social Research and author of a fascinating book, The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. Clara, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, Clara, I often ask my guests why they've written the book that we're discussing, but I think in your case, it's not really writing the book, it's it's the research. So tell me, why did you choose this area for research? I chose to research austerity and the logic underlying it as a political project because I felt the effects of austerity on my own skin as a young scholar attending public schools in Italy in the 2010s. And it is here that I realized that the debate around austerity that economists were having was not completely satisfactory. Why was it not satisfactory? Well, it was fundamentally depoliticized. It was all about technical details, minutias, that weren't though getting into the crux of the matter, which was how is it possible that austerity is so resilient? in shaping our lives. And in fact, many economists had pointed out how austerity was not really successful in its goals of curbing the debt and increasing economic growth, but it has been haunting us, I would claim, not just for the last 10 years, but much prior, even prior to the 1980s, I would say all the way to the 1920s. Why austerity keeps reemerging and how can we explain this? Clearly, we can't explain austerity just as a bad economic theory. We got to explain it as something that is much more pernicious and successful in its objectives of achieving what ultimately is its primary goal or structural effect, which is that of maintaining our 
conviction that capitalism, our current socioeconomic system, is the only one possible. And thus, that it is a necessity that we all sacrifice our livelihoods in order for the economy to run smoothly. Well, let's start then by how you define austerity, because I think that people tend to view austerity as primarily a reference to kind of fiscal policy. But you want to say that austerity should be understood as a kind of three-headed monster, fiscal, monetary, and industrial. So tell us a little more about how you're defining austerity. Definitely. I believe that the first thing in order to fully understand the world around us is to get a wider understanding of austerity as a trinity, or I like how you said it, three-headed monster, which is made of fiscal austerity, but importantly, fiscal austerity is not just about budget cuts in the aggregate. What is important here is to insert an analysis that is interested in looking at the class dimension. So what we see is that fiscal austerity is about cutting specific sectors of public spending, namely welfare expenditures. And in Britain, this is you know, the reason why the nurses are on strike and what you just said at the very beginning. We see this everywhere in the form of structural defunding of schools, of hospitals, of public housing, and so forth. So resources being shifted away from these social sectors towards savers investors in the form of paying back interest on debt. So fiscal austerity in the form of cuts in social expenditures, but also in the form of regressive taxation. Another phenomenon that we now kind of take for granted is the national allergy towards taxing the rich. The fact that actually the majority pays in proportional terms more taxes than the minority because consumption taxes keep going up, right? While the corporate taxes and the higher bracket are constantly cut. So this is very important is the fact that who is paying for the state machine is the poor rather than the rich. Then we have monetary austerity which is the second component here, which is exactly what we've been seeing happening the last six months, increase in the interest rate. So increases in interest rates, which produce an economic downturn, producing an economic downturn, this increases the unemployment rate, which of course increases our precariousness and our need to accept lower wages as workers. And finally, industrial austerity, which I see as made of policies that directly impact labor relations. So privatization, large-scale privatizations, and attacks on union benefits, labor market deregulation, so the constant increase of the precarious conditions of labor, and of course, even forms of wage suppression. So here it is, austerity as a trinity, of these policies that work together and reinforce one another. And of course, also austerity as the theory that justifies this constant shift of resources from the many to the few. And do you think, Claude, that this unholy trinity, as it were, has to go together? I remember many years ago, and sadly, I can't remember the name of the author, but 
someone who wrote a book which argued that there are progressive and reactionary, as it were, ways of retrenching, and that progressives should not abandon progressive objectives when they are required, as it were, to cut back on spending, because you can cut back on spending or you can rebalance the books in progressive ways. Oh, yes, that's for sure. But I think what the capital order, the book, shows very explicitly is that the rhetoric of balancing the budget is used to call for an emergency and this collective sacrifice towards this goal. But actually, this is just a pretext for a much more fundamental goal of austerity, which is that of stabilizing class relations, namely protecting capital. The capital order is the title of the book because capital is what needs protection and capital as wealth, as economic growth, requires capital as the fundamental social relation that we have accepted as governing our society, which is the fact that we are all trapped in conditions of wage workers for low wages. So here I think it's important to figure out that actually this necessity of balancing the budget is never what austerity is about. This is the pretext for a much more important structural goal, which is that of avoiding any form of protest towards our economic system, avoiding what we see right now in Great Britain, which is social mobility, labor upheaval, strikes, of various types, people not wanting to go back to work for such low wages. This disorder in, right, the capital disorder is what austerity is meant to cure. So I would agree with you that if there were actually the objective of cutting back spending, you could do it in ways that would be much more effective. For example, taxing higher income groups that would get much more money in the hands of the state. But this is not at all done and not because a mistake, but because the very effort of austerity, which is masked as this tightening the belt, is really something much deeper, which is something that guarantees the disciplining of the majority of citizens, also in the UK today, to accept our economic system as the only and necessary one out there. Yeah, and I mean, we don't have time to get into this, but it's fascinating. I mean, you know, economic circumstances rarely repeat. The mix of factors is always slightly different. And it's interesting that the recent autumn statement, budget statement by our own conservative government was actually pretty redistributive in terms of raising taxes for the wealthy. But one of the factors at play here, of course, is we have significant labor market shortages. There isn't really scope for the kind of industrial side of, of what you talked about because the situation is labor shortages are, are everywhere. And now we have, of course, industrial action. And it's quite interesting watching that kind of play out because what was different, of course, in the period that you focus on in the book was that mass unemployment was very much, as it were, well, the austerity advocates would say a price worth paying, but you would say a mechanism, a fully intentional mechanism as part of austerity. Yes, and I think this is really obvious also today. So the fact that the labor market is too tight, is too robust, as economists w would put it, is for the 
austere expert a problem because it means that workers have the upper hand and can demand higher wages, at least higher nominal wages, right? So here is exactly the purpose that austerity serves is to fix this extra power that the workers have momentarily gained. And this is done by increasing unemployment. And this is not something that is hidden in the intentions, because if you read any head of central banks at the moment, from Jerome Powell to his colleagues, what we see is that they mean to increase unemployment rates at the moment so as to, as you put it, diminish this problem of labor shortage. But these, you know, we can talk about this issue in very technical terms to try to render it as apolitical as possible. But what the capital order, the book stresses, is that behind this supposed technical jargon that seems as if we are managing the economy as this machine with tweaks here and there, lies a much deeper political project, which is the fact that these experts are bluntly saying, in order for our economy to run smoothly, in order for wages to go down as they should, we need people to sacrifice their livelihood. We need unemployment to increase. We need to cut all of the social expenditures necessary so as to increase precariousness, market dependence. And in this way, we achieve the situation which is best for capitalism to thrive, which is that workers get paid very little and work many hours. The motto of austerity coined in the 1920s, the years the book focuses on, is produce more, consume less. And I think this is the motto that is necessary in order for capitalism to work. Austerity merely protects this hard reality, capital as this social institutional relation. So as you say, the book, Clara, focuses, I mean, it's in large part a history of this period in the 1920s. And, and the argument that you want to make here is that we have to understand the drive for austerity in Italy and Britain and, of course, in other countries as well. And, and the economists in Britain in particular were influential in all sorts of other economies as well as a response to the real threat to capitalism, which emerges after the First World War. And it emerges, in a sense, as a combination of two things. First of all, we see the role the state can play, and we see, in a sense, that it's possible for an economy to work primarily driven by the state rather than by the market, but also that workers emerge from the First World War with a sense of aspiration as to the possibility of a different kind of order. And these two things, the possibility of a different kind of economy and the possibility of a more egalitarian society, a society where power is more, more evenly distributed, it's the threat of this, which is articulated, as you vividly describe in the book, in all sorts of movements, the guild movement or factory takeovers, a whole variety of movements. So, so you want to say that austerity is almost a kind of deliberate response to the threat that emerges for capitalism in the period after the First World War. Absolutely. While today we see strikes and forms of social upheaval that, of course, are threatening the capital order, this is still not nearly as 
strong of an existential threat as the one that citizens were experiencing after the First World War. It is after the First World War that nobody from the radical worker to the bourgeois thought capitalism was going to last more than a few years. So this is a spirit of the time that I reconstruct very vividly in the first part of the book through all sorts of archival sources that display the fact that from the home fit for heroes of David Lloyd George to the radical shop stewards who were demanding economic democracy as the basis for a novel society. So the fact that wage relations were going to be substituted with a form of emancipated labor in which employees would no longer be separated from employers, but there would be one class of producers in which we would all participate in a way horizontally. Well, these demands for a post-capitalist world that I reconstruct is exactly the worst type of enemy for the ruling elite who wanted to preserve capitalism as a socioeconomic system. And it is, in fact, in this historical moment that we see the origins of austerity. Austerity as a very powerful technocratic global project of reaction to foreclose alternatives to capitalism. So we had a few months ago on Bridges to the Future, Clara, we had Phil Tinline who wrote a wonderful book called The Death of Consensus. And what he argues in that book is that we should understand kind of see changes in politics in terms of the kind of collective nightmare that the political establishment has. And he is interested too in the kind of 20s, 30s, 40s, but then also in the post-war period. So he describes that that the kind of collective nightmare that the establishment, including, of course, the Labour government, which ended up capitulating in terms of the austerity strategy, the collective nightmare was that international finance would gang up on Britain, that the currency would be debauched, that we would be humiliated in terms of, of our kind of international credibility. That then gives way to, of course, the mobilization for the Second World War. And again, as it happened in the First World War, suddenly it, it seems that deficits don't matter and the state can play a much bigger role. And then Tinline describes that we emerge after the Second World War and now the collective nightmare for the establishment has changed. It's no longer a fear of international finance. It's now a fear of mass unemployment. And there is a consensus across mainstream politics about avoiding mass unemployment. And then we get those decades that the French refer to as les trente glorieuses, you know, those, those decades of social partnership, increased welfare spending, lower levels of inequality. It's not something you touch on in the book, but what's your kind of account of why the kind of post-war era of the First and Second World War is so different? This is a point that I'm actually trying to address in the sequel to The Capital Order. Uh, so I will get more into this research in the future. But what I would like to do is to refurbish a novel narrative of the Trant Glorieuse to show how actually these supposed golden years of capitalism required a fundamental, austere basis for their existence. 
So in a way, the attempt of the capital order is to provide a very different narrative that is the one that is usually used to understand the 20th century and to say actually that austerity is in the DNA of capitalism and this is required for the moderate social measures of the 1945 to 1970s to even be possible. So it's not easy to explain in a few words, but I would say with respect to the type of threats that you were pointing out as being about the currency being debauched and the worry about losing financial supremacy of Britain after the First World War, and secondly, about the unemployment issue in the 30s, I would suggest that the real immediate threat in 1919, 1920 was actually coming directly from the workers. So it was a moment in which, of course, the experts use as a pretext the idea that, you know, we needed to save the position of Britain as a financial empire. But really what was going on is that in these financial monetary discourses, there was an underlying threat, which was the threat of class relations, the threat of the fact that workers in that historical moment were posing to the capital order. So I think it's this type of lens that has been missing so far in the scholarly literature about the history of the West in the 20th century. And this is the type of lens that the capital order tries to shed light on. So in this sense, I would say that really what everyone was fearing in the establishment, both the private sector and the public sector, was really the idea that we could imagine a society organized on principles that would overcome wage relations and private property of the means of production. Yeah. And in a sense, Clara, you address this in the book because you talk about the reconstructionist movement. So in the first world, after the First World War, there are three camps in a sense. There is the radical revolutionary camp of worker movements. There is then, we wouldn't use this term at that stage, but the kind of social democratic position of kind of reconstructing, but reconstructing on a kind of more egalitarian basis. And then there is the kind of austerity backlash. And and so I guess what happens after the Second World War is that reconstructionist view manages to win out. But I mean, I look forward, I look forward to your future research. I wanted to talk just a little bit about the British case, again, the more kind of contemporary example of austerity, because it's interesting that the reason that the UK fell into a huge deficit in the wake of the credit crunch was fundamentally to do with the loss of revenue. It was because we had become very reliant on financial services for tax revenues. And of course, those revenues collapsed. Now, this is known, and the policy answer to this, even within a kind of capitalist framework, would be, well, okay, how do we create new foundations for revenue generation? But the Conservatives made a very deliberate decision here, which was to caricature the problems that the economy had, the deficit, not as a problem of revenue, which it was, but as a problem of spending, the accusation that Labour had failed, had lost control of spending, had failed to use the phrase that was used to to repair the roof when the sun was shining. And so it's just an interesting kind of addition to your thesis that the Conservatives identified the need for austerity partly as an economic strategy, but actually probably more as an effective political dividing line. And the reason I say all of that, of course, is that 
for the general public, this idea in austerity, idea that Margaret Thatcher, of course, used to articulate, which is that you can only spend what you earn, that, that it, it does have a powerful intuitive appeal for people, does it? Because it, it suggests to them that you can understand national finances in the same way as you can understand domestic finances. Absolutely. So the capital order shows how this type of economic rationality that is diffused throughout society and ultimately all of us internalize has a much longer history than just the Margaret Thatcher early 1980s years. And we can actually trace it back to 100 years ago in the 1920s. So the same type of understanding of how Citizens, the reason why we are in a in a moment of difficulty is because citizens have lived beyond their means and there has been squandering of resources. Well, all of this is a wonderful way to conceal what is really happening because it puts us all in the same boat, right? And it gives us a sense that there is such a thing as the common good and that austerity is actually trying to achieve a common good, rather than actually expose how our economic system structurally produces losers and winners. And here is really what austerity is all about, is try to preserve the winners from continuously winning. And it is here that I think the experience of the 1920s in Britain is very illuminating because the type of austerity code that was really finalized in such a refined way by the economic experts of the British Treasury and of the Bank of England. And the, the effort, the historical effort of the book is to try to give voice to this austerity rhetoric to then deconstruct it as fundamentally a one-sided class war against British citizens as a whole. So, Clara, I mean, I understand that you're looking at the world through a Marxist perspective. Would I be right in saying that your view is that austerity is an inevitable consequence of capitalism? I would qualify the term inevitable in the sense that I do not at all wish to give a deterministic reading of our economic system in the book. Rather, the effort here is to show how the economic system we live in is the product of specific collective decisions that make up our collective institutions. So I would say that the agents within our society that preserve the status quo clearly have to recur to austerity as a very powerful mechanism to protect the capital order, to protect the consensus for a system that does not do great great good to the majority. So in this sense, I would say that definitely under capitalism, austerity is the best weapon out there for those at the top to secure the reproduction of the system. In this sense, inevitable we can use, but at the same time, inevitable does not mean that there isn't agency here and that it's not about choices. And that's why I wrote actually the capital orders to say, once we understand what happened historically through this critical lens, we can also imagine reconstructing a future that is different. And this is all a matter of political choice. 
Well, that's fascinating because it reminded me, it took me <laughs> way, way back to the argument in the 1970s, I think, between Ralph Miliband and Nikos Polansas around, you know, Miliband had argued, he charted the relations in the British establishment. And he argued that the reason that the state ultimately would always serve the interests of capital was that the people who ran the state and the people who ran the capital were the same people. They'd been to the same schools. They were members of the same families. Yes. And of course, Palance has critiqued this Miliband view because he argued it's nothing to do with people, really. It's to do with the structural requirements that the state under capitalism has no option other than to serve capitalism. And of course, that became an extremely heated debate. And yeah. I... I Reading your book, it feels to me as though you've you've kind of got a foot in both camps in yeah. a way. You want to say, yes, austerity is always, and as it were, imminent within capitalism because it's such an effective device for the reassertion yes. of capital. But yet people do matter here. The, yes. the four Italian economists you described do matter. The two key figures in the British Treasury do matter. Absolutely. And what does also matter is the type of ideological consensus that economic experts are capable of achieving by gaining authority as these neutral, unbiased leaders of the economic machine. So for me, this is an important message here is to say, let's figure out the way in which economics as a discipline has evolved in order to represent one specific economic framework, which is the so-called neoclassical framework that allows not only experts, but also everyone else to think that in our society, those who win really deserve to win. So for me, this is very important, is to show how the power of the lens through which we interpret the world influences our actions and thus the type of institutions, both private and public, that govern us. And in this sense, it is a big critique to mainstream economics as showing how this supposed apolitical, neutral economic models are actually perpetuating a very classist economic decision-making through austerity. And this is done by models that eliminate the importance of working people in favor of the importance of the virtuous individual, saver investor, a model that eliminates class conflict from our economic system and only sees harmony in our economic system. And these ways of understanding the world are very powerful and trickle down all the way to the values that we have all espoused in our daily lives. To the point that, in fact, the example of how we should all tighten our belts in our family resonates really well with us. So, Claire, we've, we've nearly run out of time, but I guess that prompts a final question, which is, you know, there are new ideas. There's modern monetary theory or there is in the wake of the threat of climate change attempts to redefine economic growth. Do you think they can lead to deeper change, to the evolution of a more social, sustainable, equitable capitalism? Or do you think in the end, change has to be revolutionary to be significant? I believe that if one avoids idealizing how our economic system works, one understands that there are limits to what this system can deliver. And there is very little room 
for radical social reform in a system that is based on the structural necessity for people to go work for low wages and consume very little without ending up in causing an inflationary spiral and thus basically breaching the foundation of our system, which is economic stability. So I do think that problems with these frameworks that like MMT is that they tend to also depoliticize our economic system and see it only really as a machine that you can technically tweak and that then it will deliver the good of the whole. But I do think that here the issue is that we need to realize that any economic decision is a deeply political decision and that we are in a system in which certain people win, few people win, and the majority loses. And I would like to just point to the fact that the historical analysis of primary sources of the capital order also shows that in moments in which alternatives are put forth in very practical ways, as the ones I describe in the first part of the book, well, then the ruling establishment is very happy to ally itself with fascist forces for example, with the fascist regime of Benito Mussolini. So a big, let's say, provocative claim in the book is that if we put austerity at the center of our analysis, we see how what was happening in the cradle of parliamentary democracy, Britain in the 1920s, and the birthplace of fascism, Italy in the 1920s, what we see is that they were devising very similar policies that were thus treating citizens in very similar way in depressing their livelihoods in order to maintain high expectations for profits. And not even more so that Benito Mussolini was actually gaining from the support of the liberal establishment, the British Central Bank, the financial groups, and the British Treasury. We could end maybe on a pretty powerful quote that I rescued from the archives of the Bank of England of uh, Montagu Norman, who was the head of the Bank of England in the 1920s. And he writes a letter to his friend Jack Morgan of J.P. Morgan Chase, who was uh, financing Mussolini in the 1920s. And he says, Fascism has surely brought order out of chaos over the last few years. Something of the kind was no doubt needed if the pendulum was not to swing too far in quite the other direction. The Duce was the right man at a critical moment. This is a letter of 1926, and this is one amongst the very many sources that I kind of expose in the capital order to show that Capitalism has clear limits, and the limits are that people need to accept their condition as low-paid wage workers. If this condition is questioned, then liberals, progressive liberals, kind of somehow are happy to side even with authoritarian fascist governance in the name of rescuing the capital order. So I think this has us think a little bit about how it's never black nor white and there are actually close connections with different institutional settings when it comes to protecting the basis of our society. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Well, 
the capital order, how economists invented austerity and paved the way to fascism is a, well, as you've heard, listeners, it's a provocative book, but it's also one that's deeply scholarly in its historical investigation. Absolutely fascinating. I learned a great deal that I had not known before, so I can recommend it strongly. Clara, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your on your show. Clearly, as a soggy centrist, I don't share Clara Matai's worldview. It seems to me that our criticisms of capitalism must, in some sense, be tempered when we don't have a credible alternative, or certainly a credible alternative that would work in a capitalist world. But Clara's research, its rigorous research, does drive home two key points. The first is that economic models cannot be separated from the non-economic assumptions that underlie them, and that whenever we hear an economic argument, we should ask ourselves, what lies beneath? Second, that the logic of capitalism will continuously drive us back to periods of retrenchment and collective suffering unless we're willing to think radically and deeply about what the foundations might be for a radically reformed model. And this brings me back to where I started. What if the goal of economic and social development was not articulated in terms of economic growth, but human health and fulfilment? How might a different end to economic activity lead us to question and reimagine the means to that end. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org/approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.